Look, if you're going to roll dice, you're going to need precision. AwesomeDice.com has sharp edge dice for a fraction of the price of other such precision dice sellers. Chill out, my man. Oh, hello, Bard. Please, share your bardic inspiration about dice. Yeah, I've got bardic inspiration dice. Is this totally mellow cannabis-themed set with smoky interior? Exclusively available at awesomedice.com. I see. Well, precision, bardic inspiration, or one of countless other unique dice sets. It seems you can get it all at the most awesome dice company on the internet, awesomedice.com. And don't forget to let him know the Tome Show sent you, dudes. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club of October 2020. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is The Killing Moon by M.K. Jemisin, a book that was in the the appendix of, was it the 5th edition DMG? Is that where they put the appendix? Um, It's no longer the appendix in like it was way back in the 1st edition, but it's one of the books that they say you can look at for inspiration, so that's why we're looking at that. Uh, Next episode, we're going to talk about The Sword of Summer by Rick Riordan, because uh, Fred... Tracy's husband is in the chat watching the stream and he suggested it and so there we are. That's how we make decisions sometimes. And, and you may have heard that voice with us as always is Eric Paquette. Hello, bonjour. Bonjour, comment allez-vous? Ça va très bien, toi? Uh, ça va, fatigué. Mm. <laughs> oh, you're gonna run! You're, you're gonna run out of my French real fast. <laughs> it's been I, I I figured out recently that it's been a little more than twenty years since I took French. Um, so that's about. And I wanted to answer in Spanish. So oh, there you go. <laughs> I might be able to understand a bit of Spanish yeah. because it is one of the romantic languages, kind of like Italian, but. Uh-huh, like... Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so uh, so yeah, we said if we're gonna, the next book is going to be um, the Sword of Summer by Rick Riordan. If you want to keep up with us, uh, the plan is to record mid December uh, before people get too crazy busy with the holidays and what have you. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of weird shenanigans with our scheduling, I think, in the next couple of months. Um, get, squeezing in our fitness episodes and all of our reviews and, and the election night special that we're doing on November 3rd and, and everything else. I think it's going to be, we're just going to kind of play it by ear and, and record a few things for the next few months and figure it out until January. Does that sound fair? Sounds fair to me. All right. So now let's talk about our current book, uh, the killing moon by NK Jemison. Um, 
somebody explained this book to me. Like, not just as a way of introducing our, or starting our conversation, but honestly and a little bit sincerely, I, like, I struggled with this book, so somebody explained it to me. <laughs> it, it, it takes a while to get really into it because you're started and it feels like you're supposed to know this story, but it is the first book of, of the series, but so she just, she is writing by showing rather than narrating as we're traditionally when we start books. Yeah, well, so. and, and, and I thought she was going to help us a little bit because it, you know, at the beginning, it feels like the two main characters are um, this one character who's, who's an apprentice to or becomes an apprentice to to the gatherers right and i'm not going to remember the names at all because that was one of the areas where i was confused because she as an author she tended to throw a lot of names and you weren't sure is this a group of people is this a country is this a city is this a specific person or is this specific person's other name because a lot all every main character uh, it has a, a second name as well. And sometimes they just get thrown back and forth depending on who's saying it and without reminding us that that's who they are. Um, so, or uh, and sometimes it's a religion or a religious practice all have uh, different names as well. Um, and, and she just kind of throws them at you and expects that you'll catch on. And I didn't always catch on. It's probably a failing for me. I don't know. But as a first book, it didn't feel like the first book of a series because she expects me to to have already built this setting in my head. And, and I hadn't. And I think part of it, too, is that the first part of the book focuses on a particular culture, um, which... Uh, I forget. It's, it, is, it begins with a G. Gajara? Gajara which is kind of a city state mm-hmm. was, is at least in my mental model. And uh, one of the things we can point out right away, some of the criticism about the book has been that there wasn't a map released along with it. So this is all your own mental model and everyone's model may not line up because in part because of that. Um, and you're steeped in this religious uh, beliefs that they have uh, in particular in terms of uh dreams and the afterlife and how dreams can themselves be actually powerful and the power can be harvested to do things that in the beginning we mainly just hear about the gatherers or as you're saying earlier there are these types of priests that do gathering that that can get um i think they call it dream blood at some point yeah this type of stuff and it can heal people and that's why they do it and then the um, sharers, I think it was, are the ones that can use that to heal people. Yeah, they're, so the, they're like, the clerics. Right. And then suddenly in, uh, I think it was Eru or something Yeah, the, very similar to that. The character who the, at the beginning I did not think was going to be a point of view perspective character and then ended up being like the main point of view perspective character. <laughs> so. Right. So he's a, he's a gatherer priest. He uh, And so there is this idea in the city state that um, there can be, I'm going to call them commissions, but I don't think that was the word necessarily that they used. But you basically can decide to go into people's dreams. I call it assassination. They would say those are different. That's a different group they, they, that they, does they, that. They're, they're gathered. They're not as killed. They're gathered. Right. They call it the tithe, right? Yeah, they pay a tithe. And it's, it, it's in, in service to the goddess. But 
people can ask for tithes to be gathered, which Mm -hmm. becomes an interesting part of this because as he tries to gather this particular person, he is basically told he's being used and he ends up totally fumbling the rest of the gathering. And in this case, it means like the soul is rendered away from the body and has no chance at an afterlife. And it's a really horrible thing. And then we, he starts seeing other stuff happening. He gets introduced to, um, a Sunandi. Yes. Who's the female diplomat, uh, from another, uh, neighboring city state. I believe it's a, from what I remember, it was described as a under city state. Well, and as we as we get into towards the end, this other city state is like the the mother state or the the father state or whatever, like the progenitor of Gujara. Like the Gujarans started off as coming from this other one, and that it's bigger and generally more powerful. Although you don't pick up on that probably till about halfway through. And he meets her because he's been told that he has to collect from her as well uh and that she'd been found corrupt so a big part of their um belief is that corruption is something that stains everything and so if a politician or someone else uh is deemed corrupt it is okay to 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 gather them to have them pay the five and and everything well it's a little bit like it's a little weird who and what the gatherers are because they gather people who are about to die and and transition them peacefully into the afterlife which is why they don't call it assassination and they you know they they talk about that but it's also their job to to root out what they call corruption which is basically anything that's evil um it's their yeah. job to root, root it out and and kill them like that's the that's the sentence for any sort of corruption is death um and and it seems like they're also like trained warriors uh you know sort of elite jedi warrior sort of sort of uh of the the this setting yeah. uh and so it's it's jury's executioners <laughs> right so it's a weird like but there's not a lot of them there's only like three in the whole city state yeah so so yeah so and then over time it just so he questions it though because in part of what happened in the other dream or in the other attempt to gather. Uh, and then we get caught in this intrigue. We suddenly find out that he's actually the brother of the prince. And I know I'm jumping really fast, but oh. I think this is part of what happened was, right. it was like suddenly you feel out this, define the story you originally thought you were getting into is tied to the real story, but, and is necessary to understand, I think to some degree, but there's a completely different story going on here. Well, and yeah, no, and part of part of where where I struggled with it is not only because you thought you were getting a story, but that wasn't really even the story, but like the big reveal of what the story really is is supposed to. Fe- I feel like it's supposed to feel like a big deal, but it's entirely based off of like a history of uh, of the setting and the people that we were never introduced to. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't, okay. I don't understand. Like, okay, I get it that this is supposed to be a big deal. It doesn't feel like one to me. Right. And so the big reveal is that the prince, the current prince, they don't have, um, because of the history of the goddess and everything else, it's always a prince that rules. It's not a king. So he's actually the real leader. He, um, 
one, in order to become the prince, he killed pretty much all of his family except for a hero uh, who had been given to the Hedawa, which are is this religious order, basically. And, um, and, and they're, they're you mentioned they're kind of, they're they follow the goddess of dreams, basically. Uh, that is also represented by the moon. There are other gods that are worshipped in other places, but in this city, it's just this goddess of dreams and dreams are kind of when you're dreaming it's also kind of like a, you're briefly visiting the afterlife so the the world of dreams and the world of the afterlife are kind of the same place it's just a matter of whether or not you're there permanently right and um not only had he killed all of those folks in order to ascend to power um people started wondering that he had a type of madness and tried to heal him with the dream blood. And really, in fact, that just made him very powerful uh, and made him want more and more of it. But it also turns out, uh, one of the reveals is that what um, people, most of the people in the Hedawa had been always told was the dream blood was only reserved for healing and, and stuff like that. Like that was why they did this heavy thing was to do good in the world. And it turns out that the Hedawa was selling like half of the dream blood to the rich folks as if it was a drug. And which, so, <laughs> which is another weird thing. Like the dream blood is what fuels healing magic, but it's also like a drug to the point that if they, the gatherers don't have it on occasion, it drives them crazy and they have to be killed or they turn into horrible monsters. And somehow, as a result of all of this, the prince now wants to create basically a worldwide war <laughs> to take over pretty much everything. Well, yeah, and it, but it kind of starts with this war with the, the mother city-state, right? Right. But, but he gathered up all of his allies from the north. So I, in my head, it's—so it's, the, the, the setting is, is vaguely fantasy Egypt— um, and, and so when he, they talk about gathering up all the, the barbarians or whatever from the North, the uncivilized people from the North, in my head, it's, they've gone up and recruited a bunch of Vikings and that kind of stuff to come down and do the fighting for him. Yeah. And then he's going to gather all the, he's going to let loose. So he has intentionally sort of kidnapped one of these gatherers before they were supposed to have died kidnapped him and let him go crazy and become this horrible monster that they call a reaper. Uh, and the idea is we'll start this massive war and the reaper will run rampant all over the battlefield and soak up all of this, this crazy amount of dream blood because he found an ancient scroll of a former prince who lived a really long time uh, because he figured out the secrets of if you consume enough dream blood all at one time, you can become immortal. And so that's what he's trying to do is start this war so his reaper can gather up all the dream blood and then give it to him so he can become immortal. Right. And one of the and so the thing is there's even within that overarching story there's a lot of sub stories. So it's not just any other gatherer. It was a hero who happens to be the brother's mentor. Mm -hmm. And then a hero has with him Najiri who uh, they currently have a mentor mentoree mm -hmm. uh, type relationship, but Najiri is in love with the hero. And there's a lot of conversation about love and different people loving each other and what have you. And it's never, well, no, I shouldn't say it's never. 
oftentimes it's not made explicitly clear what type of love they're talking about. Um, but certainly there are, there are implications of certain kinds of love and it's not held out as a big deal either. I, I, f I feel like the whole setting and the, the, the world is very sort of sex positive and, and tolerant of, of, you know, uh, of all of that. Um, so it's not like it's a big deal that Najiri would love his mentor. Um, and in fact, the, the former mentor slash current Reaper talked about how um, Ahiru loved him as well in the same way. Um, back yeah, there. it's just more to me the, the underlying story is like the fact that they are all so close. It was almost the prince kind of liked that. Like there is that mm. like just how evil and just gross this guy was like he enjoyed putting them in a position where he was going to get his way either way, but they had to play out this whole scene in terms of like, so the thing is, is hero is starting to turn into a reaper. Najiri could kill him and stop him from becoming a reaper, but then he'd have to. So part of the story was like this uh, conflict people were having at, in terms of what do they do? Uh, does Najiri kill it? hero before he becomes a reaper to save him from that fate because it's like pretty much considered one of the worst possible fates for a gatherer mm -hmm. uh does a hero eventually give in and kill najiri because he really needs dream blood like we were talking earlier in terms of the withdrawals and stuff like that and just how do we actually handle that type of stuff there's a lot of those sorts of moral dilemmas i think presented through it and kind of jacked up a little bit in terms of like it there's a moral dilemma mm -hmm. to begin with, and then you add in emotions and stuff like that. Well, and it's and it's it's interesting as well because the characters are presented as the kind of characters who see the world in a little bit more black and white, right? There's not a, a, any shades of gray for the gatherers and for the Hedewa. Um, they have a task to do. They have to bring peace, and they do that by gathering dream blood, and they. Um, you know, to collect the tithes and, and they do all these things to, to maintain the sort of peace. Uh, and everything is very black and white. No, we're not assassins. We're not killers. We're, we're providing a service that's allowing people to peacefully move on. And that's also helping the rest of the community. And it's, it's something that people are doing willingly and blah, 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 whatever. But then almost from, I say almost from the beginning, but really at about a quarter of the way through when, when all the different people start running into each other. Um, all of that starts getting thrown into question, right? There's all suddenly they're having to struggle with these morally gray areas and what do we do and how do we play this out? Eric, you've said a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to refresh my memory. It's been a month since I've read the book. Uh, and and so yeah. I, I literally finished it a few hours ago, and I probably have as strong of a recollection as you do, just because it was yeah. there was so much going on, and and it was so uh, hard to follow for me, because because I think yeah, because I think she she wrote it in a way that assumed that you kind of knew the world and what was going on. I th I feel like she, you know, she as an author go went out of her way to present a a different perspective, right? Um, not only is it very sort of tolerant and sex positive, it's more uh, Afro fantasy. It's Egyptian rooted instead of Western um, Western Europe sort of situated. Uh, and, and I think, I don't know, in my head, she took the attitude of, well, if it was 
Western fantasy, I wouldn't have to explain all these things. People would know them, right? So I'm not going to explain all these things and just assume that people know them because, you know, um, why should it be different just because we're doing something? Except it is different and I don't have the, the background to yeah. to pick it all up. It's a fair position that she can make and it's not on her, it's on us learning more and all that to be able to learn more. We should not, so. Well. <laughs> Fine, fine, and we are learning. And I think it's a book that probably helps out by rereading if you're not familiar. Because once you've read it, you can go back to it and you know, like, okay, I know more about this world. So now you can see more of what's happening. Maybe. However, if we hadn't been reading this for the book club, I don't think I would have gotten past chapter like two or three. So, so, so I'm not real inclined to go back and reread it. (laughs) So. So I actually really liked it, and yeah. I, I'm just saying everyone's gonna have a different. I've I found I think I often have the reaction you two are having to a lot of the typical D and D books, mm-hmm. and this one felt more. I don't know. I kind of rocked it, but awesome. I like it because it asks a lot of philosophical questions yeah. to me. You know, particularly there's this whole scene where you have they're traveling back to. You, Sunandi's home city and they're in this caravan and there's this very older woman who probably doesn't have much time left on the earth and there's kind of like this assumption that some folks are making that she will of course be willing to give herself to the goddess because it'll ease her suffering and she ends up having this conversation with a hero in terms of saying like why? I still have life to live. I still have things to experience. Right. Like, why would I give that all up? What, you, 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 uh-huh. <laughs> you well, folks there, from that city are, that's what's wrong with you guys. Right. She had that attitude, this attitude of like, like when you go to the afterlife, you bring, all you can bring with you is your memories. Why would I want to cut it off and not keep making more memories? Like, I want to bring as much as I can with me to the afterlife. <laughs> So yeah. I so I, that that was the parts those are the parts of the books I think I, the book I really liked was because it was like this conversation that was happening within it. Sorry, Eric. Oh, yeah, no, and I fully agree. I mean, it it feels a bit a bit more that she focused on the characters rather than the world. But we, as we went along, we were learning more about the characters, but then we were learning about the world. So compared to more traditional Western ones where here's the world, here are the characters. So I think that's a different way of, of presenting it, which I, I, I like character-based stuff. I like finding the character and all that and seeing from their eyes of what the world is, what they're used to it and from seeing it. Right, no, and, and, I, and I, I can appreciate that as a, as a way of, of formulating a story. I just... It, the way it was set up from the beginning was I kind of expected Najiri as the as the apprentice who's learning the ways and whatever to be our window into learning about the world, that the conversations with him and his thoughts and explorations would help inform us about the world. Uh, and there was no effort to, to do that. It was just sort of, this is just the world. You're either going to figure it out or you're not. Uh, and I needed my hand held a little bit more. I wonder if, because... Um, uh, Jemson has another series beyond. I think this one has two books, and then she's got another series. Uh, and I wonder if 
I wonder how much of it is this is a, a function of her. I think this was her debut novel. And no. I want, oh, it wasn't? The Hundred Thousand Kingdom was her. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, then never mind. I'm wrong. I thought maybe it was a, it was a lack of um, that she just didn't have the experience to, to hold our hand through it a little bit. But no, I'm wrong. From what I recall, Hundred Thousand Kingdom is a bit more traditional of here's the world and all that. And okay. this one's a bit more different. She also has a sci-fi series, which was good. So, have you have you read the other books as well? The Hundred Thousand Kingdom. In any of her other books, I well, I've I've read The Hundred Thousand Kingdom and I've read uh, her sci-fi book. I much prefer her sci-fi book over the fantasy one. Okay. That also could be possibly because I'm much more into sci-fi oh. than fantasy. So it looks so, like, yeah. So it looks like she she wrote The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. Yeah. In, in 2010, and then this was published in 2012. So it looks like this was her second book, but yeah. but the first time she was doing a series. Does that sound fair? Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is also a series. Is it? Did she jump the trilogy? Did she yeah, jump between tri- series? Yep. Yeah. Okay, that's all, that always throws me off when an author does that. They do one book for a series, and then they go to start another series, and then they come back. According to you, and I know this is great radio. Uh, Wikipedia says that two of the books in the Inheritance Trilogy, which is The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, came out in 2010, and then the third one was in 2011, and then Killing Moon was 2012. Yeah. So she finished her, the first series. Oh, okay. I'm just looking at the Google listing, and it doesn't have in those other books in 2011. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I stand corrected, and I'm certainly <laughs> interested in... I'm interested in, like, I see her books, I read the premise uh, of a lot of the stories, and I'm intrigued. And I want to, I want to like them. (laughs) But I'm not there on this one, because it was just, it was fine, and the story was okay, uh, and I don't have any problems with that. Just the way the story was told left me wanting. From what I remember of Huntington King, it was a very political drama. So maybe something to go in the future. Sure. So. And then I, I think, I know we did talk about uh, Afrocentrists and, and things like that. Yeah. One thing maybe also to point out is she is still an American author. Mm-hmm. So it's just very interesting. Yeah, and she even, um, she started in the audiobook, she started with a little foreword, a little note from her that was basically uh, her saying, like, look, all of you Egyptologists out there, like, I get it. I may not have hit the right names or used the right conventions to to you know to go along with this Egyptian sort of theming that I'm using. I may have uh, what she used the specific. I may have accidentally named somebody like lover of cheese or something. I don't know, but it's it's fantasy and it's going to be fine. <laughs> That's basically what it said. And, and what I took from that was that she wanted to take Egyptian, but like as a basis for a jumping off point, but she tried to create a world right. that wasn't like, this is not just Egypt right. with a few things filed off. You know, she did try to fundamentally change it. So it wasn't based off of real world history. Mm-hmm. Egypt was an inspiration, but was not a full on copy that. Yeah. But anytime you start playing with language, you can accidentally. Right. Uh, make your your language say something you didn't intend it to because you're going more for how it sounds rather than necessarily so it's so close and could be almost exactly the same words as 
with some other completely different meaning. Right. And then the other thing maybe to point out is that she has in the past has been a psychologist and uh, looks like a job counselor or career counselor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only relatively recently that she, like in the past 10 years that she started writing, but I'm not sure exactly. Mm-hmm. And that psychology background might inform the types of characters and the types of relationships and the, and the kinds of stories that she's telling as well, I think. Yeah. So, so I, I think there's a lot of places here, like where I think she's doing some interesting things, right? I, I think this story works well. I think the, a lot of parts of the setting work well. I, you know, I think there's areas where she wants me to fill in the blanks and I'm, I'm having trouble filling in the blanks. Um, but I didn't dislike the the premise of the story i didn't dislike the premise of the characters i i never really felt the relationship of the characters very strongly you know i never really felt the the oomph of the of some of the the big climactic moments because i didn't feel connected to the background and the and the the setting and the in the history that was being torn apart it's 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 always a little strange in a in a first introduction to a setting to to shock everybody by blowing up the setting and it's like oh, but, but i just you just told me about the setting <laughs> like it's not a big deal to me that you blew it up you know um but but like the idea of like it starts as a relatively small hey there's a monster in town what or maybe there's not a monster in town what's going on right and then and then that sort of leads you to an investigation to discover there's this large political issue going on and we need to go to this other place and figure out what they know about what's going on um and then come back and have the big confrontation between the prince who started the whole thing and the monster the reaper who's running around that was the beginning of the whole investigation uh, and it all ties up real nicely in, in this climactic sort of battle at the end. Right. And it, it also reminded me a lot in some ways of ch- the Children of Blood and Bone, mm. uh, which is a book we read a while ago. That book also doesn't have clear, uh, here's the good side, here's the bad side. Mm-hmm. Like there's definitely bad things and bad people in it, but both sides make points. And that came uh, up with me when... Uh, uh, Sunandi went back to they're all back in her city state mm-hmm. and um, she, because of where that city state's from they think that what they do uh, what the Hedawa do is just awful and it's like illegal there uh, and nobody would ever want to be collected like gathered or anything like that and then you have the townspeople are pretty much the city folk are, are, are ready to attack her mm-hmm. because they do want healing and other closure from the, the, the from uh, Najiri and a hero. And she was totally blindsided by that. So the fact that neither city state has it quite right completely uh, was, I think an interesting part of it. And I imagine, um, that the second book deals a little bit with the after effects of that, right? Because when it's all said and done, the prince is defeated, the the reaper is put down, um, Najiri sort of becomes comes to comes into his own and becomes a full fledged gatherer, um, and the other city state defeats Gujara and and sort of takes over, you know. And so I imagine the the 
second book deals a lot with like, well, this this other city state who has outlawed your, the religion that your civilization is built on um, has taken over now. How do you how do you square that circle? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another book that we've read that this one also reminded me was the Torn of the Crescent Moon, which also had those different priestly characters and different ideas and different stories. Mm-hmm. So it's themes that occur and I'm wondering if it is themes that reoccur because there are, are stories of that type in that region of our world or those are common themes. Although Tracy's uh, earlier comparison to Children of Blood and Bone made me think about that series a, a little bit as well. And uh, and it's worth pointing out if we're interested in revisiting it. The second book came out last year and <laughs> I never picked it up. So as someone who really enjoyed Children of Blood and Bone, I, I wouldn't mind revisiting that as well someday. Yeah. So... What other sources of inspiration can we pull out of this book? Like I said, I think that there's a basic storytelling structure that I that tells an interesting story that has some neat twists and turns that you could um, be inspired by. I think there's some setting details. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of like it feels like the the setting details around what the Hedawa do, uh, the gathering of dream blood, and then they also mention the. Um, what is it? The the bile, the blood. There's four components. I don't remember what they all are. And I as 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 incredibly important as all of those of all of those things are, I never really got a sense of what it was. Like when they they, they talk a lot about dream blood. The the series is called the Dream Blood series, right? And I kind of don't know what dream blood is. <laughs> so. It is something that is expected by the gatherers. I mean, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's interesting because it's not just about dreams. I don't. So, talking also about the sex positivity aspects mm-hmm. you're talking about is that they have this whole other class of priests that bring pleasure, and they through that they can also collect the. I believe it is dream blood to uh, help I, with healing. I believe it was actually dream seed. Dream seed, yes, yes, even better. Which has a sexual, a much more sexual connotation to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that was like not as explored in this book. But that was a whole aspect of it. It mainly comes out because I guess like the festival early in the book is one in particular when they will do this type of collection. Right. <laughs> yes, and that's just a natural part of life, right? Right. Uh, yeah. No, there are those. I don't remember what those. There were four branches of the religion, the Hedawa. I don't remember what those ones were, the, that branch was called. But then there were the gatherers, the shepherds, uh, the, and the gatherers gather the dream blood, who we would talk, who our main characters are all about. The shepherds are the the healers and like maybe the teachers. Uh, oh, and then the other one was the sentinels, which kind of feels like it's it's like it's the fighters. Right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the clerics, the fighters. I don't know what class the gatherers would be. Almost psychic, right? Psionic? Psionic, yeah. Yeah. Psionic would probably make sense. Uh, 
don't think quite mage. But well, and the, yeah, see, they have this element of like we're gathering this stuff up that is the source of all magic, and we're entering people's minds slash dreams slash souls. But we're also warriors. Like I almost want to feel like they're psychic paladins. If you know, we'd have to create a new class that, that was sort of a psionic paladin. Yeah, in D and D terms, there's not really one class that fits so it might be a multi-class yeah maybe they have to have gone through all of the other branches they have to have been a fighter and a cleric and uh i don't know let's call the other ones bards uh that bring pleasure right um you know and maybe they have to have gone through all of those to to become a gatherer because it certainly feels like um it's it it is at the beginning of the book i got the impression that najiri who was given the news early on that he was he was uh, sort of approved to become a gatherer like uh, and then he got to choose an apprentice and they're like well we know you've been working with a hero um but he's going through some stuff right so, something went down bad for him he's not he's refusing dream blood he's refusing to do any more gathering um so one of the other two of us could be your your teacher your master what have you uh, we're happy to take that on uh, and Najiri's response is, no, 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 I definitely want a hero. I've had this relationship with him. And so you feel like like they've known each other for a little while. But I didn't feel like it was a long time. But they've no, you know, but for as long as Najiri's been working through, I assumed in my head, maybe a, a few years or whatever to become a gatherer's apprentice, that they knew each other. Then later on, it turns out they've known each other for decades. And I'm like, oh, this is a completely different relationship than I thought it was, you know, um, and kind of, through the whole thing on its head for me. I, I think it can be a good jumping off point for someone who wants to explore that transition from, uh, you know, that lawful character, lawful mm. good to some degree, that, you know, he's faced with this crisis because he believes in, and these were called laws, I believe, okay. uh, part of his faith. Uh, and he's, Forced, faced with this crisis of faith uh, here in terms of is what there is what he was brought up to believe really what was right and what is good um, and he kind of goes away a little bit from being uh, the typical lawful ridiculous character to, <laughs> to getting a better understanding of the world no absolutely no um, um, that is it is a nice sort of story of it's interesting what it's almost the you know if we go with the psychic paladin uh class right it's kind of a paladin who's falling but if we're being honest like i don't know that that's a bad thing like they're they're moving away from being lawful good but they were they they weren't just lawful good they were traditional lawful stupid right and so and so they're recognizing that no there are shades of gray and it's okay to live in this world of nuance um so yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a good point. I think that there is a, there's an interesting story there of watching somebody come to the come to to reject their own sort of beliefs about the black and white nature of the world. And then, and also in terms of D and I totally want to tr- figure out how to translate that scene when they're in the battle and they're trying to save the grandmotherly character or great grandmotherly character, and trying to figure out how to keep moving her along um Mm. that would be kind of an interesting battle scene if Mm -hmm. the if the group was in for it Mm -hmm. 
you have somebody to protect that that is feeble and weak and you have to fight but you have to protect them and keep them moving till they get to right. wherever they need to go and yeah that that's always an interesting um encounter design of have a combat encounter where the goal is not just overpower your enemies but you have this other goal that's actually more important and then when you get to that goal then combat's over mm-hmm. and so it's you <laughs> finish it off and whatever is left doesn't really matter because you right. finished the story element of the milestone and as much as the story involves like people going into other people's dreams souls what have you right and dealing with life and death and if you don't do it enough then you turn into a, a, a monster uh reaper character sort of thing whatever um it wasn't it didn't actually feel like a super high magic setting um it was you know they had magic and and these little the these stones that they used as sort of a focus to help put people to sleep and then go into their dreams and and they could insert things into their dreams and what have you so it didn't feel super high magic but there were moments of it where um where it felt like they were throwing in high magic concepts but like describing it in an understated sort of way that fit into the 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 setting that and the story they were telling that like there was one that was um oh somebody had heard that some of the hedawa could enter a sort of a state of of a waking dream and talk to each other without speaking and whatever and i'm like oh they're just describing like they're using the setting of all magic comes from the dream to describe i can send a message spell you know <laughs> or i can cast a message spell and, and sometimes i could basically be that of you know the universe is that to explain all your magical spells it is true to dream it is true this you know, your dragon and all that in order to do magic and all that so you can still probably use the same classes that you tend to claim use but just Add a flavor of it, of the dream blood, the dreams, and all that as a source of magic for your narrative placement. All right, who's got other thoughts, or should we go ahead and wrap it up? It's just it's it was it's been a relatively short discussion, but I also felt like with even with all the twists and turns involved, the story was relatively straightforward. Go go kill this person. Oh no, they know a secret that that is actually important to us. We'll let them live for a while. Oh no, there's a horrible monster. Let's go find out more about that. Oh, it's part of this plot. War, <laughs> right? <laughs> kill all the bad guys, <laughs> right? Um, so there's a lot of complexity in the characters, but in terms of the and and the the questions that it's asking, but in terms of the the plot, like. There's a handful of of story points and it and it it goes through pretty quickly. So there's this whole area where the prince like the prince's their father had multiple wives, the prince has multiple wives. So there's lots of kids and that seems very different. But the idea that they would you know all be in competition with each other and potentially kill each other off felt very western to me. Like I know yeah. it happened elsewhere too, but like so yeah, I, I don't think there was as much complexity there because of that sort of stuff, like there were hints of things that were very common to Western that made it feel less unique, I guess, to me in some ways. I don't know. Yeah, no, and um, 
And that's why it's hard to talk about. And I don't know, like you're right. So like the the father when he was the prince had they they, they have like their own little mini palace. I got the impression was sort of like outside of the city where all of the wives and the kids were raised and lived and what have you. And so the father um, had had many wives and many kids, but then as soon as the, the current prince became prince, he had all of his brothers slaughtered and all of their mothers slaughtered, including his own. And the only one that survived was Aheru because he had been taken by the Hedewa. So basically he'd gone into the priesthood and, and was already spoken for and was not going to be a threat to his power because he was a priest. Well, and and was supposed to get killed, but then the mother interceded and right. basically made the argument that because he was already a priest, do you really want the Hedewa to be upset with you? Right. Because because in their society, the way it's supposed to work is there's, there was like three or four different power groups that theoretically all had equal power in the city. Uh, right. and, and part of what made this all not go well was because the prince was unbalancing that and taking all of the power for himself. But the Hedewa are supposed to be in equal footing to the – and there's only three of them. So even that, like, they had significant power if they were equal to the prince. <laughs> and there's only three right. of them. They're almost little princes, you know. Right. And, like, there are other parts that I thought were interesting too, but I think are kind of hard to talk about in this format in terms – but I can, I'll try to talk about it quickly just because I think it was interesting is that, um, so you brought up, you start off the book with basically just hearing the, the Hedawa stuff. It sounds very fantasy, like typical, not typical, typical fantasy, but it fits into a normal uh, fantasy viewpoint, particularly with a lot of the black and white thinking, because I know uh, the author tends to like to write about, you know, social justice type issues is probably the easiest way to talk about it. One thing that it did feel a little bit like is um, looking at American history and how we're often brought up. And then suddenly we realize that the Tulsa riots happened sure. and, and those other uh, areas that were often uh, hidden from history. And cause there's this whole line in, in the book about how the goddess came about. And in particular, how the head of wall started and mm. how they started with the dream blood and stuff like that, that had been completely rewritten afterwards to make it sound all pretty and good, mm-hmm. <laughs> but underneath was not. Well, and that there were a whole other section, like the, the history of the one prince who had learned to gather all the dream blood and become immortal. Like, um, right. the, the, uh, Eheru, uh, was shocked. Like that's, that, can't be true if anybody would have known about that it would have been the hedewa and the gatherers but nobody talks about it over there and i'm one of the three gatherers in the city if i don't know this history clearly you're making things up right um so that was also a part of the book that i enjoyed exploring and, and going through and having that kind of realization walk through mm. okay any other last thoughts eric do you have any last thoughts i do not have any more last thoughts so. all right then I guess it's time to go ahead and wrap up this episode of the book club. Um, we we had an interesting experience, I think, with this book. We and and we're kind of a little all over the place. We I think we all recognize that it was a different sort of book, uh, and it was a little hard to follow at times. And uh, some of us liked that, and some of us struggled with that. And <laughs> you know, and that's all okay. Uh, I'm certainly not opposed to continuing down this vein and seeing what else comes of it um but i also 
I don't think I would have read this book uh, on my own if it wasn't for the book club. So y'all kept me kept me going through it and, and trying something new. So I do appreciate that. Certainly I've made Tracy read things she doesn't like. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and call that the end of our episode. Uh, it is time to say goodbye, but we first want to say thank you to all of our patrons from, uh, over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show and all of the, you who shop at Amazon and the DMs Guild using our affiliate links at thetomeshow.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email, thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line. It's 919-BIZ-TOME, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Dark Magic with an H and SarahDarkMagic.com. You can find Jeff at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and at The Tome Show on Twitter. You can find Eric on Twitter at Eric M. Pack, E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. And you can watch our stream of episode recordings on twitch.tv slash tomeshow and watch the video after the fact on The Tome Show's YouTube channel. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com. All right, and so that was that was that was this book. That was the Killing Moon, for all that it was. Uh, coming up in December, the plan is mid-December. We're going to be reading The Sword of Summer by Rick Riordan. Tracy wanted something nice and and light uh, and and not uh, so hard to to read through, going through the holidays and all of that. And Rick Riordan books, uh, in my experience, tend to be that. I haven't read this one, so I don't know. Uh, so we'll see. Until then, though, uh, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.